that is one of my favorite Christmas songs. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, and it, I like it because it almost has a dual message, doesn't it? And it speaks about Jesus coming and being God with us, but then it speaks a little bit about his second coming, right? Second coming when he puts everything right. So I'm definitely looking for that day as well as I know that you are. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn to Luke chapter 19, verse number 10 is where we're going to be at today. We'll actually be quite a bit through the Bible today as we look up various verses. Um, this is a good place to start. Uh, I did also want to uh, recognize the church and thank you for a gift that you gave to me and Darla, a Christmas gift, and we appreciate that very much, a card and some spending money, and so we thank you for that. And uh, we appreciate our church so much. And I uh, love you guys. Just want to tell you that. And I'm excited about the Christmas season and excited about this sermon. It's the third in uh, kind of a series that I set up a few weeks ago on why God's son came to the earth. And so this is part three of that. And it'll be the final one of this series as we conclude the Christmas season. But I hope that you have found uh, Luke chapter 19 verse 10 we'll be reading that in just a few minutes but as, as i said this is about why god's son came into the earth and of course there's many reasons why he came to this earth and we can't just limit it to three weeks or three different topics for instance he came to serve as our example of how to live he is the one person who has lived a totally righteous life none of us have done that only he has done that but he serves as an example for us. And sometimes I think we really don't take that example serious enough. So maybe too often I hear the words, well, we're only human. And there's some, there's some credibility in that. There's no doubt that we are just human. But in a, another sense, we are more than human because we have the spirit of God within us, right? So Paul makes a distinction in Corinthians between carnal people who do not live according to the Spirit and supernatural people who do live according to the Spirit. So when we live according to the Spirit, we are able to do better than human, right? <laughs> we are capable of being godlike. So I just bring that up because he does serve as an example for us. He also came to fulfill scriptures, which he did, plentifully. He also came to give us hope, joy, and peace. But most recently, we came to the conclusion that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We talked about that about three weeks ago. And then Jesus also came to call us to repentance, something that I think is really overlooked by the church and also, of course, by the world is that Jesus came that he might call us to repentance, that we might turn away from our evil ways and turn to God. Well, today we're going to be talking about how Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So if you found Luke chapter 19, verse 10, let's go ahead and stand for this verse. And a short verse, it is, but we'll stand for it and then we'll have prayer and then we'll get into the message. Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus speaking, it says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this short scripture that we have today. We know that the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament has much to say about our salvation. In fact, you might say that the Bible is God's uh, letter to us telling us how much he loves us and that he desires to deliver us from the sin that we are in bondage to. And so we pray that you would help us to understand this short scripture today in its fullness. We pray also that you would give us wisdom, that we would use this information we are to gain in a wise way, that we are to use it to encourage one another, we're to use it to build one another up in the faith, and we're to use it, of course, to tell others about Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to be obedient to it. In other words, we're asking, as the old uh, hymnal says, to trust, but then to also to obey, to trust and obey. Please help us with this as we go through this scripture and we ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. amen. So the title and the business that we're about today as we go through this sermon is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And aren't you glad that he did? Because we would be undone without him, right? There's no other way to salvation. And you would be surprised and probably not surprised today if you were to take a survey of people about how do you get to heaven? Most people would say, well, Jesus is a good teacher and he's a prophet and he is a way to salvation, but he is only one way. There are many other ways. And this is something that's usually taught in Philosophy 101, and that's why when we had a youth group at First Baptist Church in Mount Carmel, I would introduce them to other religions of the, religions of the world because the first thing you do when you go to college is usually, usually take a course called Philosophy 101, and it will introduce you to world religions. And I remember when I went to the University of Illinois and took my first classes, my first class was Philosophy 101. Comparative World Religions, I think, was the name of it. And so you can imagine what you would get out of a course like that because typically we don't want to offend people and colleges don't want to offend people. They're not in the business of picking one way, but they would say basically all these different ways, Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, Islam, they're and Christianity, Judaism, they're all passed to the same God. And as long as you follow the one you pick and do it with faithfulness, then you will make it to heaven or nirvana or whatever it is. But that's not true according to the Bible, right? It's not true according to what Jesus Christ him said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way except to go through Jesus Christ and have your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And so I think a lot of people, they don't understand why we are kind of dogmatic about this, but we believe this. We believe Jesus when he said that. And if you think about it, if, if he said that and it's not true, then he is not God. If he said it and, and he's somehow a lunatic for saying it, then who would want to follow a lunatic? It must be that this is true because he is not a lunatic and he is not also lying. He is Lord, in fact, and he knew that he was Lord. He knows that he is Lord. And so he is the one way that we can be saved from our sin. And so Jesus came to seek and to save that 
what is lost. We're gonna go into this verse in great detail and talk about just about every word in, in this. And sometimes we need to do that. And I would encourage you in your reading, sometimes you're going to read chapters during your day and sometimes you need to stick on one verse and think about that verse until you get it figured out and God reveals to you what he wants you to know about that verse. And so we're gonna do that with this today. First thing we're gonna talk about is who and what are the lost? What does it mean when Jesus says that he came to seek and to save the lost? What are the lost? Well, we know what it is to lose a coin or to lose our keys, probably more typically is what we lose. We're always searching for them, we can't find them. They're run away, right? They've run away from us. They're not where we last left them, but they've run somewhere, right? No, they've not run somewhere, but lost people tend to run away from God, don't they? And typically when you look up lost in the New Testament, I did this little search and you can do it with a computer fairly easy or you can use a concordance. But typically when the word lost is used in the New Testament, it's associated with what Jesus calls the lost sheep of Israel. You'd be surprised, and you probably wouldn't be surprised, how many times the Bible refers to uh, pastoral language when it's talking about people being lost. In other words, referring to them as being sheep. Jesus himself said that he, go, he came to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And only eventually did he send his disciples to other people other than the lost sheep of, of Israel. And so is uh, the lost sheep of Israel only referring to Israel? Well, in the, in the beginning, it only referred to Israel. That's who Jesus must go through first was the people of Israel. But later, of course, he gave his disciples the charge to go to the uttermost parts of the world to go to the Gentiles as well. And so Israelis, they're lost. Gentiles, we are lost. Really, it means that people are in rebellion against God. They are going astray, which is a pastoral term, right? Sheep have a tendency to go astray. And so those who are separated from the people of God and the shepherd are those who are lost. They are running away from the shepherd and typically they're running into danger. If you run away from God, you are running into danger of some kind. They are those who are disobedient like children who are running away from their father. Lost also can refer to someone who has passed away and in a very real sense, a lost person is a dead person spiritually. And we talked about this in our uh, Wednesday night class that we had this past week in Ephesians chapter one, it states that before we came to know Christ that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so basically we come and we find out that those who are lost or those who are in rebellion, those who have gone astray, those whose destiny, and Jesus would affirm this, is punishment in hell. And so ultimately they will be lost when they're cast into the lake of fire a place that we don't want to see anyone go, right? But we have to admit that Jesus talks quite a bit about the place of hell and, and talks about it being a place of punishment for those who are lost and do not return 
to the Father. We find out also, if you do a little bit of a study about lost sheep, that there is a flock that was given by the Father to Jesus. If you read that in John chapter 10 and John, I think John chapter 14, that these lost sheep were given to Jesus by his heavenly Father. In John 10, 29, Jesus says, my Father who has given them me, this flock, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We love that verse, right? We love that verse because it gives us a sense of security that once we have returned to God and we are in his hands, so to speak, that no one can snatch them out of that hand. But we often forget the first part of this is that these sheep, these lost sheep had been given to Jesus by the Father. In other words, there's some kind of plan to save the lost sheep. The first part of that plan is that God gives them to the Son. They belong to Jesus, but they are still in rebellion to him. They have already been purchased, right, by the blood of Christ. They were bought with a price, and so they are to glorify God in their body. But many of them have still yet to come to Jesus. Many have responded to the call and become Christians and are following after him. But many yet have not returned to him. And so what is a loving Savior to do but to go after them? And so in Luke chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? This is great news for us, right? This is the beginning of God and Jesus showing their great love for us is that they're willing to go after those who have been lost. And make no mistake, they're not lost because Jesus has done something wrong in taking care of them, right? They're lost because they have gone their own way. They have left and gone their own way. And so the great news, which we talked about in Sunday school today quite a bit, in fact, I was a little bit nervous in Sunday school because we were talking so much about my sermon here today, but the great news is that Jesus came to us. Amen? Amen. He came to us. You might ask, well, where did he come from? Well, I know that he was born in the manger, but did he exist before then? And the answer is yes, he existed before that as the son of God. He came from heaven, came from a place of comfort, came from a place where he was honored the way that he should be honored. He came to a place like, I, like Tony was mentioning in Sunday school. We watched uh, a video called The Innkeeper's Dream. And the innkeeper said that the Messiah should have had servants there taking care of him. He should have had the best room. He should have been surrounded by great works of art, but he should not have been born in a stable where animals have lived. But Jesus came because he was humble, right? He came because he is, he is a humble person. And he was born in a stable, not to conquer Rome, but to conquer our hearts. See, this is a big mistake that the Jews made about Jesus. They thought he's come to conquer Rome. He's come to deliver us from the Romans. 
And Jesus had no intention to do that, but he did come to conquer our hearts. And what better thing to do that than a baby, right? <laughs> a baby is one that will conquer our hearts. And so we have this story, which begins like this. It says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus was born in a manger and he did so that he could become a servant, a servant to serve for a ransom for many. Jesus came humbly. He could have come differently. He was worthy of coming differently. He could have come in glory and honor, which by the way, he will the next time. There will be no mistaking him for who he is. But this time he came and his purpose was to be a servant, to be our servant, to serve as a ransom for us that we could be purchased for him. He came humbly, but for lack of better words, I put down that he came effectively. <clears throat> Terrible word. I couldn't come up with anything different. But he came effectively. He came as a man, right? He came as a baby boy. And you may, might say, well, how is that significant? Well, it's significant because only a man can die for another man. You might say, well, he could have sent an angel, but angels would not have worked because they could not pay the price for men. You could have said, well, we could, God could have sent prophets. He'd done that in the past, and people still rejected even the prophets. It's only a, a man who could die and pay for our sins. I'm going to turn to Philippians chapter 5, or not Philippians, Romans chapter 5, and read from verse 17, 18, and 19. It says, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's speaking of Adam, right? Adam's one trespass resulted in death for all men. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He was effective. His death was effective for us because of his humanness. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then I wrote down that he became powerfully as the Son of God. He's both, right? One of the great mysteries 
of the universe, how can Jesus be both son of man and son of God? I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know how that happens. I just know that it happens based upon God's word. That Jesus is a person who has a dual nature. He's both divine. He's both human. We know that he is because of the miracles that he performed. We know that he is because of the heavenly teaching, the teaching that he taught with authority and a power. People recognize that his teaching came from above and was not an earthly teaching. And then finally, we know that he is powerful and came with power because of his death, burial, and subsequent resurrection from the dead. Jesus is powerful to save, amen? amen. He is powerful to save. And this flock has been given to him and make no mistake, he will not fail in saving them. He does not fail in saving those who have been given to him from the Father. He will do that. He will do it because he will seek the lost. Jesus came to seek the lost. He is seeking us because we did not seek him. Amen? Amen. We did not seek him. Let me read a little bit from Romans chapter 3. Let me get my Bible back out. Just kind of a devastating part of scripture, really. I would love sometime to go through the book of Romans. I don't know if I'll ever have the opportunity to do that, but it is a phenomenal book. And they, of course, are all phenomenal books, but I've never heard it quite put this way about how far we are from God before we come to know Christ. And I'm going to start in verse 9. Already in chapters 1 and chapters 2, Paul has talked about how the Gentiles are far away from God. In chapter 2, that's, that's in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he talks about how the Jews are far away from God. And then in chapter 3, he kind of gloms everybody together and in verse 9, he says, What then are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have been worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace that have, they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's a description of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of what our condition is before we come to know Christ. We are not seeking after God but he seeks after us, amen? amen. Hallelujah, amen. amen. He seeks after us. He seeks after us because he loves us. And he wants us in a personal relationship with him. There's one person in John chapter four that he sought after. We can see that because no Jew would go through the land of Samaria, right? But the scripture says that he had to go through Samaria. Now, why did he have to go through Samaria? because he had an appointment with a woman at the well, right? That's the only reason that we're given that he goes to Samaria. 
He had to go there to meet a woman who had questions about who the Messiah was. That lady becomes a believer, goes back into the city and tells everyone there about Jesus Christ, that he's the Messiah. And Jesus ends up spending time there ministering to those who came to faith and trust in him. He sought after her. He pursued her. That's what it means. We see it all through scripture that he pursues. We see it in Luke chapter, I think it's 15. Three parables there. The parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son. In each instance, there's something of value that is lost. And it's followed by a frantic search, followed by great joy when that person or that thing is found. This is a perfect picture of Jesus seeking the lost. He seeks after the sheep. He seeks after the lost coin. He seeks after the son. And there's great joy when they come to know him personally. Jesus tells his disciples, he said, you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. We did not choose Christ first. We do choose him because he first chose us. That's the truth of the scripture. We didn't go after him on our own. He sought us. He changed our heart and then we choose him. John chapter six has always been an amazing chapter to me. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus had fed, I can't remember if it was 5,000 this time, which, which one it was, but 5,000 or 6,000. But the day before he had fed them and they'd had their fill, they crossed over to the lake and the next day here come the people. Jesus gets upset with them. If you read it closely, I know, I know we have a tendency to read over these chapters kind of quickly. Sometimes we feel like we've got to check off that chapter and, and we've got it done. What we really need to do is slow down a little bit and see what's actually going on. But in this chapter, Jesus gets really upset with them because they're only coming for the food. He knows their hearts. They're only coming for the food. They're not coming for a relationship with him. And he gets upset with them and basically tells them, you know, you're not doing this for the right reason. And they get upset with him and very, most of the people stop following him at that time. Jesus said about that, that people group, he said, the reason that you don't come is that you've not been drawn by the Father. You're responding in a merely human way. You're not responding as the Spirit would have you respond. See, Jesus says in John 6, 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. This drawing is a wooing by the Holy Spirit under the preaching of God's word 
and it's about the gospel, the resurrection of his son from the dead. So don't, don't mistake this. Don't miss out on this blessing and this wonderful, wonderful truth of the gospel message is that Jesus is pursuing us. He's pursuing us as his Holy Spirit works in our heart through the preaching of God's word. He took the initiative. God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So many people out there, I know, I know you would agree with me, think they have to clean themselves up before they come to church, right? How, how many times have you heard that? Well, I need, to, I need to get my life in order before I come to church. It's not true, is it? Jesus went to them. Jesus came to us while we were still sinners. We didn't have no, any opportunity. We didn't even want to clean ourselves up. But Jesus died for us. And as I said before, when eventually we do seek him and we are, we are commanded to seek him, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, but we seek him because he first sought us. One other thing about this before we come to Jesus came to save the lost is that in this wooing process or this uh, drawing process, we play an important part as a church. We are a means that he uses to draw people to himself. We play an important part in this as we share the gospel with those around us and through our obedience to Christ uh, and that demonstrates our love for him and for our neighbors. Finally, Jesus came to save the lost. We've talked about this before too, but I, I always think it's in our, it's helpful to remind ourselves what are we actually being saved from an unbeliever will ask you that sometimes right <laughs> I don't know if you've done that before it's it's not always the best approach to say have you been saved because a lot of people don't know what that means saved from what you know saved from work do I not have to go to work today if I get saved or but, but we know that it means salvation from hell but really, salvation in the Bible comes from the word deliverance. It means to be delivered from sin. And so there's three different aspects of that. We are saved, first of all, when we place our faith and trust in Christ from the penalty of sin. There is a penalty for sin which must be paid in the economy of God. It must be paid. It's no different than our justice system. You know, if we want just judges on our on their benches right people who make right decisions and so if someone breaks our law there is a just punishment for that law it's supposed to work as a deterrent right i don't think a lot of people in our country realize that but when people are caught and prosecuted if they end up paying for their crime it's supposed to be a deterrent so more crime doesn't happen but anyway i get away from my topic here it's a deterrent for us as well because the penalty for sin is hell. And it seems harsh, doesn't it? I know to some people that seems harsh. But once again, we learned something on Wednesday night that I think was put very well by David Platt. The sin 
and its severity is not determined by what we do, it's who it is against. If we sin against our spouse, that's an important sin, but the consequences may not be that great. If we sin against a police officer, then we could get in trouble and actually spend jail time, right? If the judge sentenced us, us to jail time. If we sin or lie against a, a Senate committee, then we could suffer perjury charges, right? And we could go to jail for an even longer time. If we commit a crime against the president, it goes on and on, right? It's, it's the same sin, but it's against a different person and the consequences are greater. And David Platt said, when we sin against God, because he is ultimate and infinite, it is an infinite it is an infinite uh, consequence. And so there is a penalty, but this is what Jesus came to save us from. He paid that penalty for each and every person, right? Amen. He said, why, God, why have you turned your back on me? And when he turned his back on the son, that's when he poured his wrath out upon him for our sin. So first of all, he delivers us from that penalty, but salvation is, is even more glorious than that. He wants to save us from the power of sin in our life. Each one of us feels that power, right? We feel that tendency. I can't remember, I can't ever remember the name of this hymn, but it, it's talking about Christians and it's talking about how we are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. That's the power of sin in our life. And it's still present in our life, but Jesus is gradually ridding that power in our sin so that as we mature in Christ, we become more and more actually less and less susceptible to the power of sin in our life. And then finally, of course, he wants to deliver us from the presence of sin. Hallelujah. Amen, Amen. Amen right? to be delivered from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, to be in the presence of God where there is no fighting, quarreling, bickering, COVID, nothing like that. Only the joy of the Lord. Amen. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's the promise of Jesus. Come to Jesus and he will save us to the uttermost. He said this in John chapter 17. This is his prayer to the father about his sheep. He said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them have been lost except the son of destruction, speaking of Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. John 10, 27, 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I wanna close by reading one more section of scripture because Scripture says it better than I can. <laughs> and it's 
10 verses from Ephesians chapter 2, but just listen to the wonderful gift that we have in Jesus Christ that God has given us. It starts by, by saying what we've already talked about. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Doesn't say we're partially dead. Doesn't say we're pretty dead. It says we're dead. We're unable to do anything for ourselves is what that means. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of obedience. That's our former life. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, he's, tell, he's telling the Ephesians, you're saved now, but this is what you came from. You were at one time like everyone else. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following Satan. You were living according to the passions of your flesh. You were carrying out the desires of your body and mind with no restriction, with no thought of who God is. And then verse four says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen? Amen. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amazing, isn't it, what he has done for us? We were dead and he made us alive. We were not yet born and he caused us to be born again. He did this as a free gift, not because of works. For by grace you have been saved through faith and it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And so today, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus and why he came, it's a, it's a day of rejoicing, isn't it? Amen. It's a day of rejoicing for what he has done for us. And maybe for some who have never received Christ at all, this is a, a day where you can be saved. And you might ask that question, can I, can I have that today? And the answer is absolutely yes. When you place your faith and trust in Christ and you can be assured that he has done that work in your life and you have eternal life the moment that you give your life over to Christ. I think everyone in here has heard the gospel before from me. <laughs> but I wanna make sure everyone has the hope of eternal life. So we're going to close with the song. 
And it's got some very good words in it. We sang it a couple weeks ago. But if this hasn't convinced you, then I don't know what will. Ultimately, I guess it's the Holy Spirit who convinces. And so that is my prayer that he would convince anyone here who may not know Christ to place their faith and trust in Christ. And let's pray that way as we close. Father, we thank you so much for this day and we thank you for this scripture in particular. All of the scripture that we've read today has been important to us. But we thank you that you came to seek and to save the lost. That you loved us that much that even though we were in rebellion against you, you sent a savior to redeem us, to purchase us, to buy us back so that we could be with you and have eternal life. Father, who wouldn't want to be with a God who loves us that much? And so we pray today that as Christians that you would help us to surrender any part of our life that is not surrendered to you and to do that fully. We pray that if there are people here who do not know Christ, that they would place their faith and trust in Christ today. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.